Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Um, I thought I'd start this morning um, with a picture as a way of introducing uh, the topic for this morning's sermon. So um, here it is. Does anyone recognise? Steve. <laughs> I've seen him with his shirt off. It's not. It's not. Um, it's not quite that. <laughs> Not far off. <laughs> I've included two options, so hopefully the older generations um, will understand the reference as well. But if, if you've not been to the cinema for a very long time, that's the incredible Hulk that we have on our screen this morning. Um, if you're not familiar with the character, he starts out as mild-mannered scientist Bruce Banner. Quite a normal, intelligent fella, uh, that is, until he gets angry because ever since his accident with the gamma radiation um, anger transforms him into this huge hulking creature who's hell-bent on smashing everything in sight Hulk smash <laughs> is his um, catchphrase if you like um, and he's good fun he's my son's second favorite superhero um, after Thor um, he's my sixth favorite if you're interested <laughs> I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do the list for you today Sad. Hey, I've got the mic. Um, but, you know, he's not, he's not your typical superhero because as well as making him green and huge, um, his anger makes him unpredictable and dangerous. And sure, uh, you know, he kind of smashes and beats up the bad guys, but, but sometimes he beats up the good guys as well because when he, gets, when he gets green, when he gets angry, he loses all of that intelligence that he has um, as Bruce Banner. And sometimes he ends up hurting the people that are closest to him. In the comics, he actually becomes something of a, um, a social outcast. In fact, he goes to live on another planet for a time. And his anger becomes far more of a curse than it does um, a blessing. And it's anger that I want to speak to us about this morning and specifically uh, I want to talk about the impact that anger can have on our lives. If you've got your Bibles with you this morning, hopefully you have, um, please would you find Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Um, our text this morning I'm going to be reading from verse 21. Uh, I'm going to be reading from the NIV translation and actually it's the same chunk, the same section of teaching that we've been looking at together over the past couple of weeks. Um, we've just been doing it in a slightly different order than it's presented there. But if you remember, Jesus is talking to his followers. He's talking to those that are closest to him and he's teaching them about how it is that they can live um, this new life, how they can live this, this life of the kingdom. So verse 21 then says this, you have heard it said, to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. Settle matters 
quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and then you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Pause there. So Jesus begins this section of teaching with a phrase. He says, you have heard it said. You've heard it said. It's a phrase that he goes on to repeat a further five times in this chapter alone. A couple of weeks ago, um, we looked at, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. In this chapter, Jesus also looks at adultery and divorce and oath-breaking and loving our neighbour. And on each occasion, he uses that phrase, you have heard it said. And what he's referring to is something that was written in the law, not um, the law of the land as we um, might understand the laws that we live by, but the law that was given to the nation of Israel by God through the prophet Moses. You see, God wanted the nation of Israel to be his people, to be his um, ambassadors to the world. And so he made an agreement, sometimes it's called a covenant, Um, with those people. And a part of that agreement was that they would live a certain way. They would stick to um, a set of rules and regulations. And those rules and regulations became known as the law. Part of the law was the Ten Commandments, all of those thou shalt nots that you might remember from Sunday school. Um, But there were other commandments as well. And the idea was that as the nation of Israel lived this way, they would demonstrate what a life lived for the one true God looked like. And that God would bless them, God would watch over them, and so on. Um, It turns out they weren't great at it. They were often confused about what it meant, and they they wrote lots and lots of stuff about how they were to understand the law and try and understand it a little better. So when Jesus says, you have heard it said, what he's referring to is one of the instructions in the law concerning the way they were supposed to be living. Today's text then, he's referring to the bit of the law that says, you shall not murder. It's not a particularly hard one to understand, is it? It's the sixth of the Ten Commandments. Um, It's one of my personal all-time favourites because it's one of the few I can be sure that I've never broken. Um, I mean, I've definitely misused the name of the Lord. I'm pretty sure I've disrespected my mother and father once or twice growing up. And I know I've accidentally stolen mostly accidentally stolen things um, in the past. And it's hard to believe I haven't always been this perfect paradigm (laughs) of a human that you see before you. But to my knowledge, I've never murdered anyone. So that's good. That's in my my favour. Now, as we read through this section and indeed this chapter, what we see is that each time Jesus makes a you have heard it said statement, he follows it up with a but I tell you, Plot twist. Now, at first, it seems a little bit like Jesus is going to change the law, you know, perhaps let us off the hook a little bit. You've heard it said, do not murder, but I tell you, if they're being really annoying <laughs> and, and no one's around and they won't be missed, then... But he doesn't do that. Jesus never actually changes the law. Never. In fact, one of the things he says at the start of this section of teaching is, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. 
get that idea out of your head. This is God's desire for you and I'm not about to change it. And so if he hasn't come to abolish the law, what's he doing? Well, he tells us that too. Just after he says, do not think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets, he says, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, to complete it, to become the embodiment of the law, to become that witness that the nation of Israel was supposed to be. It's now Jesus. He's the one who's going to show us what it looks like to live a life for the one true God. So when he says, but I tell you, what he's really doing is giving us the inside scoop. He's pulling back the curtain, if you like, showing us how the sausage gets made. Here's the law. Here's how you are going to keep it. And today we're looking at how not to murder people, which we think would be fairly simple, except that Jesus goes a little bit further than we might expect, doesn't he? He says, you know, you shouldn't murder, but actually... Here's the thing, even if you get angry with your brother or sister, you're in trouble. In fact, even if you end up calling them a name in anger, then you're on the highway to hell, and not in a cool meatloaf kind of way. (laughs) That's my translation if you are struggling to find it in your Bibles. So this is hard again, isn't it? This is why we've called the series Tough Talk, because actually this is a really challenging um, thing that Jesus is saying to us here. You know, while I'm confident that I've never murdered anyone, I've definitely been angry with people, and I've definitely called people things that I shouldn't have, things that I won't repeat this morning. And so am I now in danger of fire? And if so, how do I turn around? How do I get off that highway to hell? So I want to explore this a little bit further this morning, and I want us to keep Jesus as our primary example in all of this. Firstly, let's think about, let's think about anger itself. Jesus says that if we, um, <clears throat> if we are angry with a brother or sister, we'll be subject to judgment. But, you know, all of us get angry from time to time, don't we? Um, it's, in our, it's in our nature. It's just something that happens. And Jesus himself is recorded as getting angry. As we read through the Gospels, in Mark chapter 3, we read um, of an occasion where Jesus was at a synagogue and there was a man with a a shriveled hand there. And Jesus wanted to heal him, but he he knew that the the leaders would accuse him of breaking the law because it was a Sabbath and they weren't permitted to work. And so he challenged them. He said, well, guys, is is it lawful to do evil or to do good? But when they remained silent, we're told that he looked around at them in anger. He was deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. He said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and he was completely restored. So Jesus healed him anyway, but but in his heart, he was angry. He was upset. And, you know, who could forget the incident in the temple as well, where Jesus went in and drove out the moneylenders. He said, my house should be called a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. And so Jesus gets, gets angry. And if he's our perfect example, why can't we? Well, I think there are maybe two reasons for that. I think firstly, it matters where our anger comes from. And secondly, it it matters where our anger leads to. You see, for Jesus, anger always comes about as a result of injustice. The times when we really see Jesus lose it are the times when either people are being treated unfairly or people are being prevented from knowing God. So in the two examples I've just shared, 
In the first one, the man with the shriveled hand is being kept from knowing God's love for him through the healing of his hand because of the evil desires of the leaders to accuse Jesus of sin. Their concern, their only concern was preventing Jesus' fame and growing popularity. They didn't care about the man or his suffering, but Jesus did. And that's what makes him angry. In the second example, the buying and selling goods in the outer courts of the temple was preventing people from having a place where they could come and pray to God. Jewish people were allowed into the inner courts of the temple, but Gentiles, non-Jewish folk, weren't. And so Jesus is angry because people are being prevented from finding God in that place. This should be a place of prayer, he says. And so what we see is that in the Gospels, when Jesus gets angry or speaks harshly, it's always to do with matters of injustice. <coughs> in Matthew 23, he says this, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and the Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy and faithfulness. I could give you many other examples of this from the life of Jesus. But what's key for us this morning is that we understand that this is the sort of stuff that he is okay for us to be angry about. You know, when we see people being trafficked, bought and sold for money, when we hear of children being abused, when we read of people being mistreated because of their race or their sexuality or their class or whatever it might be, something should rise up inside of us and say, this is not okay. This makes me angry. This has to stop. And you know, at the same time, when we see people being led astray and convinced that God does not love them, being told that they are alone and worthless and a cosmic accident with no purpose or meaning, that should make us angry. Jesus got angry for the right reasons. And his anger always led to the injustice being corrected. The man's hand was healed. The temple courts were cleared. The balance was addressed. In 1818, William Wilberforce became angry at the injustice of slavery in our country. He wrote in his diary, In the scripture, no national crime is condemned so frequently and so few so strongly as oppression and cruelty and the not using our best endeavours to deliver our fellow creatures from them. And then he started a nationwide campaign. He gathered a million signatures, which at the time was a tenth of the population. He delivered those signatures to the Houses of Commons and in 1833, Parliament voted to outlaw slavery in the British Empire. Anger that leads to justice is good. But I suppose if we're being honest with ourselves this morning, most of the times that we get angry, it's probably not for the right reasons. Certainly in my house, my kids and I aren't shouting at each other because we're angry at the injustice in the world. It's normally because one of them doesn't want to do something that I've asked them to do. Like eat their dinner or stop winding the cat up or put some clothes on. I'm pretty convinced at this point that if I let them, my kids would be full-time nudists. Um, it's disturbing. Most of the time, we're not angry about injustice. We're angry about not getting our own way. Or we're angry about our own bruised ego. Someone has said something to us or something about us and we're upset. We're annoyed. 
But you know, for Jesus, that was never the case. When personal attacks came to Jesus, he never responded in anger. I told in 1 Peter 2.23 that when his enemies hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate, and that when he suffered, he made no threats. The picture we have of Jesus on the cross is not one of him scowling in anger, but one of him asking his father to forgive those that had just tortured him and nailed him there to die. And you know, that selfish anger that we can sometimes display, it rarely leads to anything good, does it? Again, in my um, house, my soon-to-be eight-year-old daughter, her latest approach to, to not getting her own way is to slam doors. She likes to shut herself in her bedroom and slam every door that she can on the way. And then she sort of sticks her music on really loud. Um, although the only CDs she has are with Toto Children's Choir and One Direction, um, <laughs> which certainly don't lend themselves to the rage that she's trying to display. I think I sort of needed to introduce her to some metal so she can rebel properly. My six-year-old boy's approach is to punch you and scream, you've ruined my whole day, I hate you! They're nothing if not dramatic, my children. Goodness knows what's going to happen when they reach teenage years. Though, you know, I sometimes wonder if they haven't got the better approach because at least they get their anger out. They don't, um, you know, what do we do as, as, as grown-ups? We internalise it, don't we? We allow that anger, to, that bitterness to go deep inside, to, to fester and grow, just waiting, waiting for someone to cut us up at a junction. And then we let them have it full force, as long as the windows are wound up. We're still British, after all. <laughs> but, you know, joking aside, anger can have serious health consequences for us. It can lead to high blood pressure, it can lead to insomnia, it can lead to um, headaches, digestive problems, as well as mental health problems like anxiety and depression. Not to mention the damage that it can do to our relationships with each other. Jesus goes on to talk about some of those consequences. In verse 22, he says that anyone who is angry um, with a brother or sister, um, sorry, he tells us that anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. Um, Raka is an, it's an Aramaic term that conveys contempt for the mind. So it's sort of um, like calling someone an idiot or um, a moron. It's not um, the harshest of terms, but Jesus understood the danger of labelling people in anger. So much so um, that he talks about it leading to the fires of hell. Actually, the word he uses um, in the original text is Gehenna, which his listeners would have recognised as a valley to the south of Jerusalem where they would take all the rubbish and the waste and burn it. It was a very um, visceral picture of judgement because he knows that when our anger causes us to sin, it puts us on a path to destruction. The Apostle Paul writes in his letter to the Ephesians, In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. See, I think Jesus knows that being angry and that name-calling and that murder are actually on the same road. They might be some way apart, but when we get settled in our anger, when we feed it, when we let it grow, we give ourselves a trajectory that actually leads us away from God's plans and purposes for our lives. In the words of Yoda, 
Fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. And hate leads to suffering. Just because it was said by a puppet doesn't mean it's not true. Jesus goes on to say in verse 23, Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. This is perhaps a little bit odd for us. We don't really have an altar um, in this church. Some churches do. But in Jesus' day, the altar was found in the temple in Jerusalem. It was the place where you would go and offer your sacrifices to God. It was a form of worship sometimes a form of repentance, and sometimes people would travel for days to get to the temple to offer their sacrifices, maybe only a couple of times a year. And what Jesus is saying is when you get there, you know, you may have travelled a long time, but when you get there, if you remember you've got an unresolved issue with someone, then turn around. Just go back home. Sort out that problem first. And what's interesting about this is that Jesus appears to be telling us that God is more interested in the condition of our relationships with each other than he is in our worship and adoration. The way in which we treat each other really, really matters to God. And actually this is something that we we see um, all through Scripture. In Isaiah 1, God says to his people that the multitude of your sacrifices... What are they to me? I've got more than enough burnt offerings, he tells them. He goes on to say, learn to do what's right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. In Amos 5, he says, I I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your, Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I won't accept them. Why? It's because there were people among them that were being mistreated. You see, our worship to God should inform our relationship with each other. We read this in 1 John 4.20. Whoever claims to love God, yet hates his brother or sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they've seen, cannot love God whom they've not seen. And he gives us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. See, I think if, if, we're, if we're not careful, sometimes we can get into a mindset where we think that our faith, our relationship with God is just about us and God. How am I doing with God today? What's going on in my relationship with God? How's that going? But you see, God is invested in and he cares passionately about the way in which we treat each other. Our relationships with each other matter to God. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment is, he replied, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, he says. Then he says, but the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. And as much as it's important for us to love God with our heart, soul and mind, we also need to love the people around us. And you know, over the past couple of weeks, we've been looking at other hard sayings of Jesus that are all concerned with this area of how we treat each other. How we look out for each other. Two weeks ago, we looked at the importance of not seeking vengeance, of not standing on our own rights. And last week, we looked at the whole area of forgiveness. How we can begin to let go of the hurt that's been turned to us. And and what we've been pointing out is that both of these steps lead us to a place of reconciliation. But when we harbour ill feeling and anger towards a person, we remove that possibility. 
Jesus knows that, that revenge, that unforgiveness and that anger puts us at odds with each other and ultimately at odds with God as well. So if you're wondering this morning, how am I doing in my relationship with God? Be sure to also ask, how am I doing in my relationship with my fellow brothers and sisters? Because actually it's a really good measure of spiritual health. Jesus then talks to us about those outside the church. He says in verse 25, Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Later on, the Apostle Paul puts it this way. He says, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And so our responsibility is to keep our anger in check for the sake of our witness. Jesus said, they will know you're my disciples by the love that you show for each other. When we lash out in anger, it damages our witness. So how do we do it? How do we keep our anger in check? How do we make sure that we can continue to live in right relationships with with each other? Four quick points I just want to make um, as I bring this to a close this morning. The first thing I think we need to do is consider the cause. Consider the cause. You know, there are many things in this world, in this country, even in this town that are worth getting angry about. Many injustices, people who do not have a voice, who are in desperate need for someone to stand up for them. And I think as Christians we have a responsibility to stand up for those um, who have no voice, to fight for those who everybody else has cast aside. But there's also a lot of things that are not worth getting angry about. Trivial things, silly things, the kind of things where um, our anger does nothing to help. And in fact, more often than not, only serves to inflame the situation further. In his book, um, The Jesus Lifestyle, Nicky Gumbel says that the test as to whether our anger is justified or without cause is to work out whether it's based on love for others or simply love for ourselves. I think that's a pretty good measure. We need to work out whether our anger is based on the love for others or simply on love for ourselves. Second thing I think we need to do is learn to press pause. Consider the cause, then press pause. It's a nice little rhyme for you. Ecclesiastes 7.9 says, Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit. You know, physiologically, there are a lot of changes that happen to us when we become angry. Our uh, blood pressure increases, that's why we go red-faced. Our breathing becomes shallower. We enter what's known as fight or flight mode. Our jaw and our fists clench and our abdomen tightens as though ready um, for battle. But perhaps most significantly is that our prefrontal cortex, which is the part of your brain that is responsible for reasoning and logical decision and rational thinking, just shuts down. It just turns off. And the reactive parts of your brain take over. And so when people say, oh, I'm so angry, I can't even think straight, that's factually accurate. That is literally what's happening. You can't, it's not possible. And you know, it it takes between 20 and 60 minutes for normal functions to resume. 
20 and 60 minutes. So counting to 10 is helpful, but it's not nearly long enough for you to be able to think clearly about what's happened. And so it's really important that we learn to press pause, not to react in the moment, but to leave space for ourselves to calm down. Thirdly, we need to learn to watch our words. You know, 99 times out of 100 when I'm angry with my wife or kids, I know I'm overreacting. I'm just tired or distracted or frustrated by something else. But the danger is that we say something or that we do something while we're angry that is going to affect them for a long time to come. We all know the power that words have, don't we? Whether they're said in anger or not, the wrong word said to the wrong person at the wrong time can destroy someone completely. We've been hearing, haven't we, the past couple of weeks on the news about uh, Molly Russell, that 14-year-old girl that took her own life in response to things that she read on the internet. Our words have power. When our kids yell, I hate you at each other, we always sit them down and say, that's not what you mean, is it, really? How do you really feel? Just stop and think for a minute, because I know the damage that can be done through negative um, labels. A recent psychological study found that those suffering regular verbal abuse, such as being called an idiot by someone close, suffered damage to their brain equivalent to the damage that is caused by sexual or physical abuse. That old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, is not true. Words are just as damaging as physical abuse. And you know, it can happen to such an extent that the brain rewires itself to only hear negative things about itself. And it can take years and years of therapy to undo that if it's caught in time. And so we need, to, we need to watch our words. We need to learn to hold our tongue when we're angry. Um, James in the Bible, he says that the tongue is a world of evil among parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire and itself is set on fire by hell. Let's tame our tongue. And finally, this morning, we need to learn to count the cost. In the scripture we've read, Jesus talks of the cost of our actions. He speaks about being handed over to judges and thrown in prison and being, needing to pay fines. But I think the more significant he, cost he talks about is not the legal ramifications, but it's the cost to our relationship with God. It's the cost to our relationship with God. God cares passionately about the way that we treat each other. And our worship to him is as much about loving and caring for each other as it is about singing songs. We've had an amazing time worshipping God this morning. But if we're here this morning singing songs and there are people in our life that we are harbouring anger towards, that we are beefing with, as young people might say, we need to go and do something about it. Because God cares as much about that as the singing. If we're serious about following Jesus, it means to be, we need to be serious about the way we treat each other. We're going to get angry from time to time. Of course we are. It's only natural, but we can either allow that anger to lead us away from God and away from each other, or we can choose to do something about it. I think Jesus gives us these instructions because he wants us to move off the path before we even start down it. You know, murder might seem like a really, really long way off, but the more steps we take in that direction the further we move away from God and his plans and purposes in our life. We need to remember that verse from Ephesians. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are angry and do not give 
the devil a foothold. Don't leave it. Don't let it fester. Don't let it grow. Don't start down a road that is ultimately going to lead you to destruction. Let's pray.